Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for bookish people. If you want to reach bookish people on the internet, if you have a message that you want to get out to bookish people on the internet, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary slash culture sites like the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus Paris Review, Electric Literature, the list goes on. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Everybody, here we go again. This is the Other People Podcast, the Other People Program, coming at you from Los Angeles, California. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here and uh, I'm talking to you. I'm very pleased to be doing that. My guest today is Wendy C. Ortiz. She has a new book out from Civil Coping Mechanisms. It is called Bruja, and it bills itself as a dreamoir, which uh, is a variation on the memoir. It's like a reinvention of the memoir. You know what I'm talking about. You will in a bit once Wendy explains it, which uh, she's going to do right now. I'm not going to talk a lot uh, in this episode at the, at the start of the show. I figure I'm just going to get out of the way since Wendy and I had such a uh, lovely and productive conversation. So here she is, folks. This is Wendy C. Ortiz, and her book, One More Time, is called Bruja. So we made up that genre, Dream War. You invented your own genre. Yeah, pretty much. Um, And I say we because when I first um, gave it to Michael Seithinger at CCM, he had asked me for something, and I thought, well... If this book is ever going to be published, it's a a publisher like him that could publish it because it's innovative fiction that they typically publish. And when I told him the dream war idea, he totally jumped on board. But then in the What does book, that mean? What does that mean, dream war? Well, it's funny because I didn't really have a definition. I just liked the idea that it it's a book about dreams. It could be considered a dream journal. But it's like a life that I lived overnight in my sleep. It was written around the same time as the text for Hollywood Notebook. so Which is your previous book. Yes, my previous book. So between 
like 2001 to 2005, um, the text was written. So, so what, these you, dreams happened. Are you recording your dreams? Are you somebody who has vivid dreams and like keeps a dream journal? I used to. I think it really ended around my kid. I don't, they ruin everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have the vivid dreams that I used to have. And I definitely don't record them anymore unless something stands out. If it's like a person or a phrase or a fruit or something weird that yeah. stands out, then I'll record it. But it's not, it doesn't feel like it even happens every night that I remember them. So I've given up on it. It's La been years. Last night, my wife, or this morning, my wife was like, do you remember waking up last night and asking me if River farted? <laughs> and I woke up, because I sleep so lightly. We have the baby monitor still. Uh -huh. And I, I think in my sleep, I thought I heard my child <laughs> fart. And then I thought I heard my wife laugh. And so I woke up and I was like, did he just fart? And it turns out my wife was not awake. She was dead asleep. Oh. And so she just heard me. Like I woke her up in the middle of the night. Whoa. And I was like, did he just fart? She's like, what are you? She's like, do you, why did you wake me up to ask me that? And I was like, I thought you were awake and laughing. I was like half asleep in some sort of. I like, sleep with earplugs now. And oh. it, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like I never slept with earplugs until I was pregnant, like really deep in pregnancy. And I was just like, oh my God, I just need to turn everything off. And now I can't sleep without them. Well, so we use a fan. Like my wife, neither my wife nor I can sleep without a fan running like full blast, which oh. it drowns out yeah. a lot of sound. Yeah. So I think it performs the same. Now function. I feel like I have to have like something in my ears to just block everything out, which is kind of scary. I mean, in the first few months of my kid being here, it was like, no, I, I can't use earplugs. I have to be able to hear everything. But then probably when she was around five or six months old, it was back to earplugs. And now I have to I don't to have care them. if you're screaming for food. <laughs> Mommy needs her sleep. I did my time. Yes. Uh, so, okay. So you have a lot, you know, you used to at least have, uh, a lot of very vivid dreams. Yeah. And I've what, been recording them for many, many, many years, even before this. Are you finding narrative in them? Are you, are you finding, uh, just imagery that then provokes narrative in your writing or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what do they look like? So the dreams that are in this book kind of have a narrative. And one of the things that I did was I used all the same pseudonyms for the people that I've used for Hollywood notebook and some of my essays and excavation. So Jeff appears in this book in a dream. Um, so I used, who is Jeff? Let's out him right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you remember excavation? has a teacher named Jeff in uh, it. So oh, right. he appears and it's like really, that, that really gross. Character. Yeah. Really gross, <laughs> scary dreams about him too. But Basically, if you, if you look at the text and then of course I edited all the text because this used to all be on a website, I captured all of the text, just like Hollywood notebook knew that I was going to do something with it at some point, edited it so that there was like a hint of a narrative. I cannot tell you that there is like a narrative arc in this book, but you know, I don't know. My second book didn't have one either. Well, it's weird. Cause sometimes dreams I'm, I'm imagining, especially in the aggregate can probably suggest something. Oh yes. So reading them all together and the way that it's edited, there is a thread of a narrative in there. And it's, for me, it's easy of course, to pick out the themes, but as I've been talking to people who have read copies of it, they are, they're seeing a narrative thread as well. So I feel like good. I want it to be very subtle, I'm, I'm not but crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the only, but you know, it's like, there's a lot of animals. The same animals tend to show up a lot. There's a lot of sharks. There's a lot of like big 
ocean animals. You ever Google um, this? Because like you can find all these sorts of right. like, you know dream uh, deciphering. Right. I websites. tend to, I tend not to use any dream interpretation stuff because when I was in Jungian analysis, my analyst was always like. Let's just think of these dream people, animals, situations as aspects of you. And if you think about it that way, then what does it mean? So it's not, it's different than if I look up in a dream dictionary, anything about cats is usually about sexuality. I can sort of go there. Like that makes sense on a certain level. But what if I am like all, like there are lots of dreams where there's like a dozen cats at my feet and like, I'm trying to count them <laughs> or they're jumping out of You're my such arms. A sick <laughs> And so like, you know, I have so many dreams like that. I think it's more, you know, it's, it's, it's probably more multifaceted than just sexuality going on in there. Well, and it also, I think it also, especially if you're coming at it from an, uh, an analysis standpoint, uh, you know, you're trying to work on yourself or whatever. Like if you start to externalize all of these things Mm -hmm. and make them some kind of other, I think that you might be giving them a power that they don't deserve. Yeah, Whereas if you, if you say like, oh, this is something from inside of me, these are aspects of me, right. it makes it, makes it something that you could probably control better and that you right. would have more power over. Right. There are some people like there's, there are figures that show up in the dreams in this book that I am still curious about. I don't know who they are. Um, and sometimes they had names, like there was a name, David Shelton and like a person who showed up in my dreams. I have never met this person in my life, but they showed up in the dream with a name And I have a theory about this. I kind of imagine, you know, like you see babies, people are constantly putting their face, like stranger faces in the baby's face. The baby is recording all of this. It's going somewhere. And so I sometimes wonder if like these weird people that show up in our dreams, we don't know who they are, are like just random people that, you know, as children growing up, we've just recorded all of these weird faces, people, names, and then they just like show up later in a dream. I mean, that's one, I mean, that, that's as uh, workable to me as any explanation, but then there's also part of me that's like, maybe it's somebody from a past life. Maybe it's somebody from a future life. Maybe it's a fucking alien. (laughs) Totally. And that's why it's important to me to write this stuff down, you know, because I want to be able to look back at it and go, Oh, Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Like how much how much magical thinking do you do you allow yourself uh, when it comes to stuff like this specifically, but then also in life generally? Like, are you somebody who indulges in that, or are you somebody who's more of a no, you know, like not unless there's evidence. I'm not. Gonna... Oh no, no, I'm not like that at all. I feel like you cannot, you cannot prove to me whether or not certain things exist. Yes, okay, like there's a couch here. I see the couch, but you can't tell me that aliens don't exist or ghosts don't exist. Like I, you can't tell me that. But you can't. Also, I also can't be convinced that aliens. I mean, it seems like logical to me that there are other intelligent life forms in the universe just based on its size. Sure. Like the probability seems very convincing to me, sure. but like I do not have concrete evidence that's been presented to me as of yet. Right. I like either positive or dispositive. Hmm. And so like, I'm like, right. yeah, I think I'm inclined to be like, you can't tell me they don't exist. Right. I think they probably do. Right. But we're still waiting for that. And I don't, you know, a ghost to one person could be something totally different to another person. And if somebody that I know tells me that they've seen a ghost, I believe them. I feel like, okay, you had that experience. I haven't had that experience that I know of. I want to. Yeah, I want to too. No I grew ghosts. up. They don't never visit me. I know. I grew up with um, a grandmother who was constantly telling me things like, if a UFO landed in the street right now, I would get on it and go. Or like she would tell me when I die, I'm going to try and get in touch with you. You know, like I'm going to do my best. If God lets me, I'm going to try and get in touch with you. And like, she would base it off of twilight zone episodes, like the episode where the telephone wire, like they find out that the telephone wire is in some graveyard and like somebody keeps getting a phone call, but nobody says anything. And it's because the telephone wire is like connected to a grave or something. <laughs> like my grandmother would say, you know, if I can do that, I will try to do that. My grandmother's now been dead for like five years and I haven't had any visitations that I'm aware of. Any dreams? No, Yeah. no. Yeah, I mean, I had a buddy of mine die when I was in college and I had one very vivid dream where I was in a very nice restaurant, which was, uh, it was like almost like black tie Ooh. and, or I was wearing a suit, you know, just very mm -hmm. unusual for me to be at a dinner like that. And I remember looking across the restaurant and he was there and he just looked at me and smiled and I'm like, I woke up. <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. But that's it. I never get shit like that. Yeah. And, I, and who knows? That was just a dream. I mean, I don't know what that was. I mean, my preference is like, I'm going to stay open to this stuff. Um, I feel like I am a person who believes in synchronicity. So I, if I'm open to it and if I notice it when it happens, it starts to happen more and I'm not always conscious of it, but when it's like really big and sticks out, then it's like, Ooh, okay. Something is at work here. I'm going to pay attention to it. So I feel like I tend to keep myself open to anything. Like, okay. you know, I, that's I, a good way to be. It, it can't be disproved to me. Right. So and it's better than being like closed and like, cause like, like the word that comes to mind for me is certainty. Right. You're not, I'm not certain. Can, yeah. How could you be certain? Totally. So at the same time though, I don't want to indulge in ridiculous bullshit. So like, what would be the line that you wouldn't cross in terms of indulging in 
ridiculous bullshit. Well, it's a little complicated because, you know, you have people like, like, for example, you have people who like get into the whole fairy thing. Yeah. Like, oh my uh, gosh. I used to be that when like, I was a teenager. Like Tori Amos world where it's like <laughs> there's sprites and fairies. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to say that like, I'm somewhat along the lines of what we've been discussing. Like I can't disprove it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but when it comes to drawing a line, I would say, I'm not going to spend any time on that. Right. Right. Like I can't. Fairies might exist, maybe, but hey. I'm not going to go on the journey to find fairies. Well, and I've been reading, uh, I was reading, uh, just this past week, I was trying to read true hallucinations by Terrence McKenna. Oh yes. I have a copy of that. And I, you know, I really love listening to him speak. Like he's a, he's an incredible, like extemporaneous mm -hmm. speaker. And, uh, there's all sorts of stuff on YouTube and podcasts and stuff like sure. that. And it can be very, very, very interesting to listen right. to. He's a very bright guy, but the book didn't do it for me. It's hard stuff to write about. A. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then secondly, I was like, dude, I think like you guys just did too many mushrooms in the Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> like that was, I, I didn't get nearly the, de the depth charge that I get from hearing him speak. I don't know what it was, but, um, I guess I can, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I can find myself like, cause he sees a UFO. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unexplainable stuff oh. uh, that happens down there. Oh, and okay. so, but it's, it's, it's hard to articulate uh -huh. the, the psychedelic experience. It's hard to articulate the dream experience. Yes. The two, yes. the two actually have something in common. Uh, yes. I think, yes. you know, there's some similarities there. And, um, I, I guess it's just, it's hard to make a convincing case, right? You know, after the fact, it's I sort of, it's gotta be experienced. Almost. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know if you've seen books, I'm not going to talk about fairies the whole time, but <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen, there's like books out there that have like real pictures of fairies and they're taken, I think it's like early 1900s or something. And it's like the, this collection of photographs that's really well known among, you know, people who are into fairies. And the pictures look ridiculous, but when I was a teenager and also when I was taking a lot more drugs, I was totally open to that. And I was like, yeah, fairies, yeah. like I'm going to look for these fairies. And, you know, now I'm, I'm much further away from that experience. And, you know, like I can see how like the psychedelic experience is also a way of trying to get closer to either a dream experience or a supernatural experience, paranormal. Extraterrestrial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a lot of what um, McKenna uh -huh. you know, supposes is that there's like an extraterrestrial element. And when you talk about fairies, I mean, you, like, I mean, not to spend too much time on this, but I've always been like haunted slash fascinated by what they describe in the uh, DMT experience as oh. the machine elves. Have you ever heard of this? No. <laughs> Uh, apparently when you do DMT, which is a very potent, but very brief, uh, yes. it's like, it's a very short lived hallucination. It's like seven to 15 minutes, Oh, but it's extremely intense. Whereas like acid, it's like right. a 12 hour commitment or right. whatever. Uh, this is like, you know, you smoke it, you sit back and like for 15 minutes, it's, you're just gone. And he reports that he goes into like a kind of dome and these like self dribbling metallic <laughs> basketballs that are like little with little elfin voices every oh. single time he goes there, like surround him and sort of sing to him and like, <laughs> Whoa. but is that just limited to him or do uh, other people? I think other people, other people report oh, machine elves, okay. which, which how far from fairies is machine elves? I think, right. is, I think is my point. Right. It's like the more masculine fairy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Women are like, Oh my God. <laughs> 
fairies. <laughs> Guys are like the machine elves. <laughs> they're, they're dribbling. They're metal. Yeah. It's so, you know, there's like weird elements in my book that are like, they're definitely places that I return to. That's the other thing. Like when you were saying, like, he goes back to a place and these, these things appear that makes me think of a series of dreams that I was having where I would keep returning to the same place that doesn't exist. What is it? There are lots of them. Oh, okay. So like name in, one. in the book, well, in the book, one was Olympia that isn't Olympia. So, you know, I lived in Olympia for eight years. Uh, you know, if you go there physically, it looks a certain way, but every time I would show up to this place in my dreams, I knew that it was Olympia, but I'd wake up and say, oh, that's Olympia. That's not Olympia. It's I'd like, just show like up. Wes Anderson's New York in Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. It's like almost New York. Right. Yeah. Like I'd show up and like some of the elements would be the same or I'd meet somebody there who, who I'd go, oh yeah, okay, this must be Olympia. That's not Olympia. But there are also like all of these other places that I can't think of off the top of my head. But when I dream them in the dream, I am like, oh yeah, this place. I've you been here before. It. But when I wake up, that I know that the place doesn't exist. How I keep returning there in my dreams. And, and so pre-baby, how often did you, did every morning you woke, woke up and you could remember it? Not every morning. There were periods of time. Like I have a lot of different notebooks over the years. So it's like maybe a couple years here, I would start to write all my dreams down and then I would let it go. And then I'd start it back up. And the last times that I was doing it, it's like I would wake up in the middle of the night and write a little like, you know, you could barely read it the next morning, just like a few key words. So it was pretty different recording than when I had all of this time and energy to like wake up the next morning and write it all out, you know, Olympia. That was not Olympia. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Olympia. Yeah. Uh, okay. So when it comes to your professional work in psychotherapy or yeah. in, as a psychologist, yep, psychotherapy. So psychotherapy, mm -hmm. does that give you insight into, I mean, you talked about being in Jungian, Jungian mm -hmm. analysis mm -hmm. and uh, you know, how that can give one perspective on uh -huh. their dream life. Like, is there anything else that you glean from, you know, that side of yourself that allows you to understand your mm. dream, you know, your dream existence or what those things, like, what do dreams, what function do they perform for human beings psychologically? Well, I don't know if I can answer that, but I feel like, because it also would probably be different. Everybody could answer that differently. Right. I feel like now what I look to in my dreams is, I probably do look for answers to questions like, you know, there's the very common, like if you're trying to work something out in your head, like maybe ask it before you go to sleep and then maybe Does an answer or, you know, how do I finish this novel? Right. You know, like what's Which the ending in case you don't listen to the show ever, except for this one. <laughs> I've been complaining about trying to finish my novel for like six episodes in a row. So, you know, like I, I actually feel like that's how I got the ending for Bruja was like, I didn't know how I was going to end it because it's just a series of dreams. What dream do you end on? Like which one is the most significant dream to end on and talking it out with people and then actually having a dream that gave me the ending was like, Oh, okay. This, this, gives, is how it this works. gives me hope. Uh -huh. This is what I need. It's got to have a fucking dream. Maybe that'll happen tonight. Maybe now that's been implanted. Yes. But you know, the other thing that, uh, just came to mind for me is that, uh, do you ever read vanity fair magazine? Mm -hmm. Like, you know how they have on the front of vanity fair magazine in tiny, tiny little lettering, like a little quote from somebody yeah. on a recent issue, maybe the most recent issue. It said, 
It was like a Roald Dahl quote, the guy who wrote uh-huh. Willy Wonka. Uh-huh. And it was like, people who don't believe in magic will never experience it or something yeah. like that. Well, that's how I feel like, I mean, that is how I feel like too about synchronicity. Like people will often, you know, I've met people who are like not down with synchronicity that, you know, they just are like, ah, whatever coincidence, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I don't know if you are open to it and you notice it and you start to make connections over time, it starts to get a little weird. And why shouldn't it be possible? Like, why not? You know, like this is a strange world. I, I think, I think it's stranger than we suppose. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a lot stranger. Yeah. You know, like it could be like, we have no real idea what's going on. Yep. It's possible that what's actually happening is inconceivable to us. Right. <laughs> totally. And maybe I, even that's, that is the world that I rather live in is yeah. to imagine that. And I think that also just, you know, this kind of takes us back to like the drug experience as well. I think that you know, if you're looking for that, or if you're open to that, like a lot can emerge from that experience that you take with you later. I mean, I've, it is so hard to write drug scenes, like what is experienced, but I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to stay open to it because I am genuinely curious. And it's, it's been a lifelong curiosity for me. Well, I was thinking today, I think that especially with psychedelic experiences, Mm -hmm. which take people, you know, they're a great fascination because so much happens yeah. in, internally. Yes. Uh, but also because they're very hard to describe in retrospect. Yes. So there's this great mystery to them. Yeah. It makes me want to, um, like people need to videotape themselves. Oh my gosh. More seriously, <laughs> like get it on tape, get it right, on tape and right. like try to like, you know, have your iPhone out, tell, talk into it and say what's happening <laughs> Yes. so that you have some record yes. because otherwise it's gone. I used to write on acid. And so I have like some papers and they just look stupid. I mean, like I was trying to draw things and I don't know how to draw or even just my handwriting just got so crazy, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm, I feel like in the past I may have, I may actually have some recorded tape of me and friends talking like on acid or something. College. 20, 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the last you, time I did you're, acid. You're done with that. You know, the, it's funny cause I was just thinking about this the other day. The only circumstance I would do this stuff in again is if it came from a source that I knew that it was like somehow medical grade, like I want to know what I'm doing. That's yeah, all. You right. know, like I don't want to just take whatever I find. Like it would have to be medical grade. And this is actually not that far from who I was as a teenager, because anytime I would try a drug as a teenager, I would like research it in my health textbook and, you know, okay, we're going to take ecstasy tonight. Let's read about MDMA in the health book. And then I would show up and do it, you know, and you know, this is just like now a little bit more you know, mature. I just now, please just give me medical grade. And then I I will trust it. I just want it from a doctor. As long as a medical doctor gives me this stuff. Yes. The MDA MA trials that happen, you know, like I read about them from time to time. And I think there's like, I like to pay attention to it because I think there's value in it. Um, so I always imagine like that would be the only circumstance in which I could try that again, because I've had some really bad experiences with it in the past. Well, and it's like, I read every once in a while about these doctors, I think at UCLA who are doing, uh, psilocybin experiments. Yeah. You go into a room, they put you on a couch. There's like a painting on the wall. They play some nice music. Yes. You have like a teddy bear. Yes. They give you 
the psilocybin <laughs> and then they monitor you. Uh-huh. That sounds great yeah, to me. Yeah, totally. Sounds safe. That's the best. Yeah, that's the best circumstance. You've got headphones, a comfy Absolutely. couch. You're in a nice room. They've painted the walls a color that's like, you know, friendly and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. They've, they've kind of thought out the environment for you. Yeah. And then if anything goes south, you've got doctors Yes, there. exactly. I would, I would volunteer me for that. Me too. I would totally do that <laughs> as go. well. All right. We're, we're ending this now. We're going over to uh, UCLA. <laughs> we'll report back. We'll record everything. But it's like growing up, I read story. I read so many stories about drug use and I was super interested in having like the safest experience possible. So even as a teenager, like I said, looking at a health textbook or being like, okay, if we're going to spend eight hours on this drug, like, let's try and make sure that we have some toys that are appropriate for us. And we have something to look at on TV and we have a place to go. And like, I would pay attention to all of that stuff. You're smart. You've got some sense. Some sense. You're like the den mother yeah. of the group. <laughs> you, really? Yeah, I do feel that way. Like, I could never completely lose my shit. But every group never. of friends needs one of those. Yeah. You've got to have somebody who's yeah. got a toe in reality. Yes, So yes. Every, everybody else can go yeah. bonkers. Yeah, I loved watching my, my friends go bonkers. <laughs> that was great. You're like, I have uh, been reading my medical textbook. I, and, you know, there, there are ways to uh, mitigate. It's good to know that stuff. Yeah. You know? And I oh, think, yeah. You go, if you go into it with a more solid, especially if you're wired for, you know, for that sort of thing, yeah. where you like to have the information. Yeah. If you have the information, you're probably predisposed to have a better time. Right. You're not yeah. going to feel like you're flying blind. Yeah. I mean, the last time that I took acid, I distinctly remember like I, at the time I had a boyfriend who was working at a, like a mental health facility and I remember Perfect. thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to call him and have him come get me. Cause I was like at Leo Carrillo with my friends and like having the craziest hallucinations that like anytime I try to write about it, it sounds stupid. You right. know, it's like a Doberman pincher in the tent. There was no Doberman pincher, but it was like a hallucination of a Doberman pincher, like, you know, palm sized, but it was scaring the shit out of me. I don't know. You know, like I've tried to write it. It never comes out. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little freaked out. It never comes that. out right, you know, but I remember that experience being like, I can never do this again. Like, uh, you know, at the time I thought never do this again. And as an adult now I'm like, well, under very particular circumstances, I would do this again. Yeah. I talk about this in the show all the time. I'm always fascinated by people's experiences with yeah. it. Um, I guess the last question I would ask, like, do you have a feeling that there's real value there? Is there and, some, it's like, I mean, cause especially for somebody who's a psychotherapist who does writing. So you work creatively. You also work in a uh, medical field. Mm-hmm. Like, do you see value in those experiences? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I think that this may be stretching it a little bit because I don't know everybody that I meet. I don't know what their drug experience has been, but when I find out that I'm talking to somebody who's had psychedelic experiences, it does feel like, okay, there's something that we understand about each other. Like yeah. we've been there yeah. and like, I like knowing that I, it's weird to me when I meet people who are like, who've never done anything like that. I'm like, Whoa, yeah. huh? What's that? Like, it's just, it, it's like they stayed you've on a never, certain plane. You've never and... held a Doberman pincher in the palm of your hand. <laughs> it's your fucking problem. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same way. I mean, clearly I always ask people about that. Uh, so how do you do the work? You know, you've got a busy life. You've got uh, the psychotherapy work. You've got a child, you've got a partner, you've got like, you've got a full life. So, yeah. and you seem to be cranking books out. <laughs> like I, I also sense like as an extension of the den mother, the psychedelic den mother in uh-huh. you, I sense that you have a, a type A-ness and that you hmm. have an ability to be disciplined uh-huh. and, I do. and ritualized, I do. which I think 
pretty much comes with the territory, but to greater and lesser degrees in people. Like, yeah. how do you do it? Well, the good thing about the, like, I feel like there's something in my personality where if I do something like two times or three times in a row, if it's good or bad, I will keep doing it. And then I have to keep doing it. And so then a discipline happens. So, um, it could, but like I said, it could be good or bad. So I really have to pay attention. Um, so I happen to be in a place right now where I feel like I have a lot of freedom that I didn't have before my kid went to, you know, like school. So, um, I have some weird freedom right now, but I'm also in a strange place with, um, psychotherapy. I'm still an intern and I need to actually like you know, jump all the rest of the hurdles to become fully licensed and start my own private practice. Right now I'm in an internship. And so, um, it's a lot to juggle, but at the same time, it's totally doable because I have this certain freedom right now. Um, but I'm, you know, like, I also feel like I should be disciplined, like, because I have this freedom, right? I what should be disciplined. Yeah. Just I to mean, have the time to do work. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was like, you know, in my late twenties and I saved up a bunch of money so that I could take a few months off to write. I didn't do shit. Yeah. Everybody, everybody, most people have at least one of those. Right. But but I look back at that time. It's like, okay, well I can't really, you know, feel bad about it anymore, but I did for a long time. And then, you know, everybody always talks about like you have a kid and then suddenly you don't have time. Well, I felt like suddenly I became so much more disciplined because the time that I do have, I'm like, Oh my God, I better use this time That's right. really well. So well, yeah, I know my, uh, my friend's mom just died. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on this show. She mm-hmm. was a friend of our family and you know, just like a lovely woman. Um, and, uh, my wife was at their house like right after she had passed away and she texted me a photo and there was like a little piece of paper on her stove, you know, the way that yeah. like, you know, women in their seventies, <laughs> but it was like this quote and I'm going to fuck it up cause I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, today is going to be the greatest day of my life. I'm not going to procrastinate even for a second. Oh, wow. Something like that. Oh my God. And especially when you're like right there in the moment of uh, loss, you're just like, and then it, but it make, I, I think uh, about it all the time. Uh, like, and it was like some Buddhist monk wow. or something, you know, it was a quote from somebody, yeah. but I think I've thought about it every single day since then. And it's sort of along those lines, Mm -hmm. just like going to every day, just expecting it to be awesome because why not? Well, and then just don't fuck around, get get to it. Right. I don't know about you, but I, um, and I actually don't even know how old you are, but I'm 28. I, (laughs) I am finding now the truth that I never knew before, like turning 40 and like now I definitely feel like you don't have any fucking time to right. waste here. Right. Like get this shit out there. It's going to go fast. Yeah. And so I feel like this, it's not really a, a huge pressure, like in a, in an uncomfortable sense, but it's this, it's a certain kind of pressure that I feel like it's a clarifying. there's a lot that I want to do. Yeah. So I better do it. It's a clarifying and thing. I don't have time to like sit around and be upset if somebody rejects my work. Mm. I have to just keep going. Yeah. Like I don't have time. Well, and here's a question for you. Like I say this kind of selfishly because from my own perspective, I'm looking at this, like it's easy to get trapped in this thought process for me where it's like, this book's got to be really fucking good. It's got to be, you know what I'm saying? Like it's got to be the best I can do. And I want Uh it to, you know, not that I have any kind of illusions about, oh, it's going to sell a billion copies, but Mm -hmm. it's got to do well. It's got to be well received. It's got to be the best, you know, I put all this like emphasis on that. Yeah. 
And you know, you obviously want to put your best foot forward, but there's also something to be said for just like, put your best foot forward, get it out and then get on to the next thing. Make your art. Yep. Yep. You know? And like, do you get caught up in that? Like, Like you seem not to, because you're, you're pretty productive and you're publishing books and it's not, you know, I don't find that you're getting hung up. On... I can't, I don't have time. I don't feel like I have any time to get caught up in it. So I just have to keep moving on. And it's like, you know, so my interests might change. And so that might lead me in a different direction than what I'm doing, but it's, it still feels like, you know, productive. And I kind of, I have love hate relationship with the word productive. Like I feel like I can be super productive lying on the couch reading that is productive to me too, it's critical. you know? And so is like a 20 minute nap, but also um, critical. yeah. And so I feel like, you know, we all have our own definitions of what it looks like when we're productive. Um, and I just, you know, I feel like, yeah, I'm proud of these books. I feel like they've done the two books that are out have done what they could do. I feel like I'm hearing good things about the third book and I can't really waste any time or energy on like, you know, hoping everybody loves it or, you know, it, like it, it's going to, you know, jump out and do something magnificent. Do you read I'm reviews? just happy it's out. Um, you know, I do read reviews, although I don't know if I'm going to continue to because I, for the first time I read a review that was in a, like a print journal. Um, and it was for Hollywood Notebook, and that came out last year, but I just read this review in the last few months, and I didn't even read the whole thing. I, I skimmed like three paragraphs, and I was like, this person hates it. I'm not going to read the rest of this review. But that was the one and only time where I felt like, oh. This is toxic. Oh. This is going to hurt. Oh, like yeah. I kind of expect that from Amazon reviews. And I've definitely read a couple of negative reviews on Amazon for excavation that like totally took the content to task. I expect that. Yeah. But like, I was not expecting like this kind of negativity. Like he, he actually did use some, some language that I'm, I'm probably in denial about now. Now I can't remember, but there were a few words that stood out that I was just like, Oh my God. And then I just decided I wasn't going to read any more of it. Well, and so what about also working, uh, from the inside out, you write personal stuff mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. do you ever think to yourself like, Oh, you know, uh, I'm too self-involved. Like what, what is your stance on yeah. writers who write autobiographically? Cause clearly you're one, Yeah, you must have made some semblance of peace with it, but like I do the same, or at least I am right now uh-huh. and I can find myself concerned. I can be like, you know what? maybe this is too much me in uh-huh, the world. Like, uh-huh. Is this worth a shit to anybody? Uh-huh. Um, you know, I feel a couple of ways. I think one is that, um, I had did not grow up reading books about women that were anything like me. So I feel like, Oh, you know, I'm going to write this. Like I'm going to write about my experiences because I do think that I've had interesting experiences and I think that there are readers out there who are interested in reading them. What are the distinguishing characteristics? Like what are some of the distinguishing characteristics or experiences that you've had that you think would make your work unique? You know what I'm saying? Like the, the void that it's filling. Right. Um, well, I think that, you know, I mean, excavation has definitely, it continues to strike a chord with people and primarily women, but also some men I hear from men. Um, I feel like that experience, um, could be translated to so many different readers in different ways. It's like anybody who ever had issues with someone older than them or some power dynamic or some, like there was something sexual happening that they were not sure how to navigate. 
like that kind of experience, I think the, the particular one that I had was noteworthy enough to write about, but it also translates to readers in so many different ways and touches them. So it feels like, okay, they didn't have to have the same exact experience, but they relate to it on some level. Right. And I think too, like when I think of formative experiences that might make my stories stand out, it's like, I think about, I was this Mexican American kid growing up in the Valley, going to a like mostly white private school. And that's a very particular kind of experience. What school? Um, I'm not going to say because I kept it out of excavation. Um, and I feel weird saying it. I haven't really revealed that. I mean, it'd be easy to find out, but it's, I don't even know that they exist anymore. Okay. Um, they might be out of business, but, um, but I went to Notre Dame high school, which, you know, like that too was an experience because there's a lot of class stuff happening there. Like I was definitely not of the same class of many of the people that I was going to school with. And then I went away to Olympia, Washington for eight years. And that was a really strange experience, you know, moving to the Pacific Northwest. I was like even more the minority there. And I was also really interested in like political science and like thought that I was going to go in a certain direction that I didn't go in eventually, you know, but, um, I think that these are all interesting experiences and they are aligned with some of the books that I ended up finding as a young adult about women who are leading these different, interesting lives. So I feel like we need more of that. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I want to put out here what I experienced and I feel like I get good feedback from people about it. Like they want to read more. So I'm like, okay, I want to keep writing this. Well, and let me, let me flip it. Cause I can, I can go both ways with myself on uh-huh. this, you know? And it's like, on the one hand, it's like, okay, this is like a uh, self-obsession or not self-obsession, but too self-involved or too self-pitying or, you know, mm-hmm. all the criticisms one could think of along those lines when it comes to writing, you know, from mm-hmm. the inside out. The other side of me can say, you know what, it's an act of, uh, if it's done well, it's, it's an act and with the right intention, it's an act of generosity. Right. And sure. you talk about like universality in art or something that really has uh, a lot of resonance with people uh-huh. from a variety of backgrounds. Yes. It's not because somebody sat down and started, you know, taking extremely, uh, broad brush strokes or had some sort of grandiose premise and worked from there. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when something really connects with people, it's because the writer is working from great personal depths and yeah. with specificity. And even though their particular experience might not match up with yours, because yeah. how, how often how, does that yeah. happen? Uh, you know, it's like those weird little resonances, uh-huh. like somebody who has experienced some sort of toxic power dynamic might not be exactly the same as yours, but it's something that they recognize emotionally. Yes. So I can see like a great, um, there's a lot of uh, nobility in doing that. So you know, it can, it can go either way for me. I guess like going somewhere in the middle of those places of like, you know, navel gazy nobility of some sort, somewhere in the middle is where I want to be. Right. It's like, um, I feel like, there's also a pressure to not tell my story. And it's like this quiet, unspoken pressure, like, oh, your story might be too this or that. We don't, you know, we're not sure we can handle that. And that's where I'm like, oh, no, no, this means I have to write it. So that's why I feel like I can keep going into that territory over and over is because I have internalized voices that are like, shut up, don't talk about that. 
And that what, is taboo. And what, yeah. What about risk taking? And like, what about the emotional content of your experience as you are writing or conceiving what you write? Because, you know, there, like, there's a, a part of me that understands it as, you know, you have to be somewhat dispassionate as you're writing. You have to be able to look at your work with a cool eye and you have to be able to, you know, cause that, that's how you edit. That's how you kind of keep the good stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's also, you know, a part of me that's like, well, you know, you also have to be willing to take emotional risk. You have to be willing to expose yes. yourself. So when you talk about this middle ground between navel gazy and nobility, mm-hmm. for lack of a better mm-hmm, way of putting right. it, you know, I think that like, I think the risks that we take in terms of self-exposure, the emotional risks we take in our art might lean more in the direction of navel gazy. Uh-huh. Like, like it's somewhere uh-huh. closer to that. Yeah. You go, possibly. maybe if you go too far down that rabbit right. hole, it gets to be a bit much. Right. But you know, you have to kind of, it's again, it's like this, uh, tightrope walk, you know, totally. you have to try to kind of do a little bit of both and hopefully you strike some yeah. good middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. I mean, I feel like what makes it possible for me personally to like stick with the personal writing is maybe because I was in therapy for like 13 years. You know yourself. Yeah. And I processed a lot of it and I don't feel like I'm processing it on the page. And I don't want to read writing where it's being processed on the page. Like I want people to have like, you know, done some internal work before I'm reading it. You know, um, I feel like I can tell the difference in that writing. And certainly with the internet, it's like, you know, you can have something happen and put it right up in an hour. And sometimes some writers can do that really well, but I feel like the majority of writers, it's like, you're too rushed. You didn't have time to process this. It's, it's, I used to do that. And I can't even do it anymore. I mean, I guess I could if I had had to, but I find myself wanting to slow down. Yeah. And I'd rather do like one big thing mm-hmm. every two or three years than yeah. do like 500 small things every 24 hours. Yeah. It's hard to do. I mean, you can, you can get into a rhythm with it and, you know, but I find that, you know, for, in terms of depth of thought, perspective, right. I think the kind of things you're talking about. You need time. You need uh, to do some work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have been through 13 years of of therapy. That's a pretty intensive um, process, Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. I have not done therapy. Mm -hmm. Do you need to do therapy? No. I don't think people need to do therapy. Not if they have, like, certain people in their lives that they can actually work things out with in a conscious way, which can be difficult. Like, I haven't... I've been out of therapy. This is the longest I've been out of therapy since I was like 23 years old, it's been, I basically quit therapy when my kid came. So it's been almost six years that I've been out of therapy and it's definitely different. Quit therapy, buy some earplugs. That's <laughs> all know. you need. I know. It's like, <laughs> it's so, it's weird though, because you know, here I am a therapist and like, I get some slight measure of therapy through supervision with my supervisor, but I'm talking about my clients, like transference, what comes up with clients. I think this is my therapy, this show. I could see that. I, I can to totally people. see that. I mean, I, I, yeah. mean, I, I talked to my wife, um, the I, monologues too. I mean, you know, it's like I'm working things out and I do a lot of seated meditation, Yeah, which is me basically talking to myself, but yeah. you, you bear witness to it. Yeah. I might not always be able to like sort it out in one sit, but well, I don't, yeah, it's like, I don't feel like people need to have therapy. I wish everybody would try it. 
and it would ideally be with somebody that, you know, they, it was a good combination because, you know, there's too many stories of people who like go to therapy and then they have this fucked up experience. Well, and, chemistry matters. Yeah, it totally matters. And I've been lucky. I've only had two therapists in my entire life and it worked from day one. And that was great. But I feel like you don't necessarily have to have therapy. No, but you do need to spend time actually reflecting on what's happened and like, and then to write it, it's like, for me, it takes years to find the way to write the narrative of what happened. So I can't just write about something big, you know, in the, like, it takes me like five or 10 years to like digest it and then be able to write it. And also, uh, this is where I would also add that there needs to be uh, deep reading, yeah, which is another form of self-investigation yes. and reflection that is all too often lost. But you know, always having your nose in a book, yeah. reading at least thirty to fifty pages a day, yeah, if you can. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I don't know. It's it's weird because I've been partnered now with two different people who don't read, like they just don't read, and yet they both of them smartest people that I've come across. But like they're not readers, and it's of so. Anything? You know, like internet articles, maybe right. occasional magazine article, but not like books. They're not readers of books. I think I, you know, I think that they, but they had to have read books to get their education. Yeah. yeah. And they I, did. I would say that there's a part of me that mirrors that experience. Like I think I drifted away from books, uh, to an embarrassing degree huh. when the internet came around. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, not that I wasn't, changes. I wasn't reading, not yeah. that I wasn't reading any books. Changes I just wasn't things. reading as much. Yeah. And I was reading a lot more online. Right. I think there's something lost. I think there's something like way lost, even in an, an ebook experience. I think there's something about sitting down with a paper book mm -hmm. and reading just to sound like a complete, you know, orthodox <laughs> nerd. But I'm, I really feel this way. Like it, it enriches, um, it, it enriches a life. And yeah. I think if you let that atrophy or you let it go completely, that's a loss. Yeah. Well, you know, that would be my argument. I, I've been a book nerd since kindergarten. So I feel like it, that's not going away. I have to read, I have to read constantly. And actually like I, now that I keep track of my book reading, it's like, how do you do it? I just do it on Goodreads. Oh, you do. Okay. I yeah. gotta get on that. Oh my I forget what I read. That's yeah. This is, it's, it's a great tool. <laughs> Cause this is what I do. I read paper books and I'm a very sophisticated person who leads a rich life. And almost as soon as I finish a book, I forget everything in it. I think that that's something that we don't talk about a lot, but yeah, I forget books all the time. Like what and so it's great to have this thing where I can look back and go, Oh, these are the, all the books I read in the year 2015. And, and then like, I can come up with my list at the end of the year, like here are my favorite books or how whatever. Many, how many you read in a year? Right now I have read for this year. I have read, I think like 130 books. Holy shit. I know this is like banner year, but a lot of them are poetry books. So, oh, okay. you know, cheating. yeah, You're cheating. <laughs> <laughs> they're all just haikus. <laughs> but that's the other thing too, is like, Poetry or sh very short form is the only kind of writing that I can do immediately after an experience now. And that's what I will do like on my Tumblr or something, you know, it's like, like Rosie O'Donnell. Do you ever read those? No. She writes an online journal like, no, where she I writes no these idea. poems. I, I, I think it's actually, I love reading her shit. Are they good poems? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just fascinated. Whoa. That, that's what she I had does. no idea. Yeah. She wrote a poem about, she wrote a poem that was just on uh, like it made the rounds on the internet. It's because of the crazy, 
uh-huh. Trump stuff. But uh-huh. she wrote a poem about her experience meeting Ivanka Trump, his daughter. Whoa. And I read it and I was like, that's some good shit. Like, Whoa. <laughs> I'm going to go look this up. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I, like, I, I mean, I, I'm reaching here, but I, I do think that there's some sense to be made of going through an immediate experience, wanting to record it somehow mm-hmm. and putting it down like that. Yes. There's a freedom yes. to it. There's a brevity to right. it. You know, there, it's kind of a distillation. Yes. Um, but you don't have to. I don't know. I guess maybe it also is a function of time. You can't, right. you can't sit I down can't. and write like two hours, you know, a, right. a two hour long essay or something like that. Right. Like the last thing that I did like that was, um, I started surfing lessons and I was thinking about when I'm out there, how there's the period of time when you're like pulling your leg up and you have to like stand up. And that period of time where you're like pulling your leg and like pushing yourself up it feels like time slows down right in that moment. And I wanted to be able to write about that. And I had to like, I knew that I had to write it right away so that I wouldn't lose it. But I also knew that it was going to come out as like a paragraph. I'm not going to write a book about this. I'm not going to like write an essay about this. This is the form. I will just stick this on my Tumblr so that I remember. And so it's recorded somewhere and perhaps that will show up in some larger work later. I don't know. know. You never know. Right. Is that what you use Tumblr for? I use it as a public notebook. That's how I think of it. It's like storage of like little bits and pieces. But you share it with people. I do. Why? Why not just keep it for yourself? I feel like I like to throw it out there. One, Tumblr feels like a void. Okay. It feels like I'm just throwing shit out there and like nobody could read it. And so in some way that feels safe. But then also it does become a place where I can sort of take a temperature of like, okay, what are people thinking of this? And I do that with Instagram too. It's like, I'll put like three lines of a poem and I can take the temperature and see what people are, you know, how people respond to it. Like a laboratory. Yes. Test marketing. Totally. That's not a bad, bad. and I think there's something too, uh, I'm, I'm persuaded by the logic that it's a good idea to share your work and to make your creative process, mm-hmm. and especially in this day and age, in the internet, you know, age, uh, readers, fans of art, whatever form it might take, they love to see how those sausages totally. are made. They love to be included in yes. that process. Yes. So I think that, that, I mean, I think that could be, uh, conceived of as an act of generosity too, you hmm. know, like letting people in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can also, I guess, be, I'm, I'm always this way. It, I, I always believe. Are you a Libra? <laughs> no, I'm a Leo, <laughs> but I'm like, I feel like I'm misplaced as a Leo, but, uh, I can also be persuaded that like, it's nice when somebody just like goes off and like makes the sausage and then like, you know, yeah. Just to gross everybody out with the extended <laughs> sausage metaphor. <laughs> I've been using that a lot lately. Like I was thinking actually recently, and I, I think I tweeted about this in the last few weeks about like. The sausages that have been made, like that I know of, like the times where I was in the top, it was the right time and place where I got to see how the sausage got made yeah. and how awful that was, you know, right. there are a couple sausages <laughs> that I know all about. Look, look at Wendy's Tumblr after this <laughs> podcast interview, it'll, she'll be posting a poem involving sausage. <laughs> um, so you and I were talking before we came on the air, uh, about you potentially dipping your toe in screenwriting. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I have never tried to do screenwriting. I have kind of joked about like the stereotype of screenwriters here. Um, I went to like one little workshop when I was 
Oh God, a long time ago, I went to some like one day workshop on screenwriting and like, you know, I didn't learn anything and I, I don't know. I've stayed away from it. And, um, I was really, really lucky that one day I happened to be on hiking in Griffith park and Jill Soloway was like, such an LA story. I didn't know her. I didn't see her. Like I, I mean, she had like sunglasses. She was all like, you know, covered up. And, um, she was like, Hey, hi, hi, I'm Jill Soloway. And I'm a big fan of yours. And I was like, what? And like prior to that, she had posted a picture of excavation on her Instagram. And so that was how I was clued in like, oh my gosh, she has read my book and she loved it. And that's fantastic. And so over the last two years, like I would keep running into her on the trail and can we I, can would I stop chat. You? Can I yeah. stop you for a minute? Yeah. I want to, I want you to continue, but yeah. before I lose this thought okay, and, and I might, I might be wrong. Cause this just, okay. just occurred to me. Okay. I feel like women in the arts do this sort of thing. Cause I've, I've heard All some men very, don't do this. I don't think like Wait, John, this sort of thing, like what, like supporting other oh. authors posting a picture of oh, their yeah. book on their Instagram being yeah. like, Oh, Hey, you know, this guy, uh, Joe Smith wrote this great. I memoir. think I would agree. I don't see guys doing that. They don't do it but as much. Women do it. Women like support one another yes. to a degree that, and, and especially with using the tools of like social media mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, yep. cause that's where I see it. That's how I have like yep. some evidence for it. Right. Absolutely. Guys aren't like that. Absolutely. They, don't do that. they need to do more of that. Yeah. I mean, like I, yeah, I want to, I want to be supportive. It's like, you know, Lydia Yuknovich always talks about, um, you know, like she got in the door and now she's holding the door ajar and like, you know, helping all of these women to come in. And that's, that's what I want to do as well. Like as much as I can, you know, from the little place that I'm in and that's how I have experienced Jill is that every time I would see her, she'd ask me what I was working on. And that is not a question that most people in my life are asking me, you know, when they see me, what are you working on? And so I would always have to be like on like, okay, here's what I'm working on. Get your elevator picture. Yeah. And you know, and I'm horrible at this stuff and I'm not, I'm not the person actually who's going to be like, Oh, we should try and meet for a coffee or I should try and make No, I would just be like, I'm just going to run into her here and there and see what happens. You guys have the same hike? Yeah, I guess so. You're a big hiker. Yeah. It's your thing. It's totally my thing. How I have often, to do how often it. are you doing Three it? Three times a week. Three times a yeah. week. That keeps you steady. Yes, I need it. Like that to me is therapeutic. You ever seen right a, uh, the mountain lion up there? No. P21 or whatever? No, no, whatever. just the pictures. Yeah. But you go up there, you walk, you listen to music? I do listen to music. I have to. With headphones? Yes. So if P21's tracking you, you're not going <laughs> to hear that thing coming at all. I don't know why I'm not concerned about it. Well, they're they're nocturnal and they don't, they, I mean, let's knock on wood. There's more rattlesnakes right. now. Like, and I, I haven't seen one up there, but, um, I see a lot more signage for rattlesnakes than I used to. I see a rattlesnake every once in a while. I don't, I don't give a shit about yeah. a snake. I mean, I wouldn't hear me. it and that would suck, but I mean, you gotta, but those trails are wide. You're, you're going to see it. Well, there's a trail that I take beyond the observatory. I guess it's now they now there's a bunch of signs where there didn't used to be. So I guess it's called the Mount Hollywood trail. And so I, there are some narrow like sub trails, I guess that I will go up and that would be scary because there isn't any place to go. I would just fall off the cliff, you know, but, um, luckily that hasn't happened. It's it's just crazy to me that they have a lion up there. 
All the people, city the size, they're just fucking lying, living in this city. Yeah. I like that. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah. And the pictures are so awesome too. You think creatively when you hike? Sometimes. Or are you just, is it just a clearing? Maybe making it's space? It's both. It's totally both. It's like, I mean, I, I know that I'm, I'm always in my head anyway. Like it's not, sometimes it's not a good thing. You know, I can be with like a bunch of people and I'm like, I have no idea what's happening out here because I'm like doing all this stuff in here. Yeah. So... Um, it can be both. And I never go on a hike, like thinking like, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to think about this. It's just like, whatever comes up once in a while, I will take notes on my phone, but it's pretty rare. I I, usually, when I run into people, like they have to like wave their hands and like be like, hello. You always go alone too. I always go alone. I think I I joked with you and I was like, I'm going to go hiking with you. You were like, no. Yeah. So everybody (laughs) asks me like, People who come into town who are like, hey, let's get together. Let's go on a hike. I'm like, no. Yeah, uh-uh. I, had a, I had a guy that I worked with when I was just out of college. He was w- like much older than I was. I was like 21 years old. But I always wanted to learn how to fly fish. Uh-huh. And he was like this <laughs> kind of like sweet old man fly fisher. And I was like, I like oh, I'd love to go learn how to fly fish. You, we should go somewhere. He was like, he was like no. <laughs> and like really serious. Right. Because people, and I get it. You know, I totally get it. You have to have some room for your, you know, depending on how you're wired. I think maybe people who are like extremely extroverted and like draw energy right. from yeah. personal interaction. Or whatever. I don't understand that. But like, I think, <laughs> I think generally, and this is something that I find is maybe undervalued or, uh, not talked about all that much is the importance of like having every single day, some personal time, totally like to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself, uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever, Mm -hmm. like it could be 10 minutes. It could be an hour, like depending, depending on how your life is and what's happening that day. But, you know, I think that in our culture, in the world we live in, it can often be misconstrued as being selfish. Right. Like, Oh, Wendy needs to go for her me time hike. <laughs> you know, like people, right. people can kind of go, Oh, well, but you the know, truth is if I didn't have it, I would be batshit crazy. You're not going to you be know? any like, good to the people you care uh, exactly. about or you're not going to be as good. Exactly. And that's, that's, I mean, I talk to my clients all the time about this. It's like the analogy of, you know, you get on the airplane and they do the whole, like, you know, first put the mask on your face. I use this too. Yes. And it's like so brilliant because people always understand it immediately. Yes. It's like, you're going to be of no use if you put their mask on first. Right. So you've got to do yours, then do theirs. Yeah. And that's basically how I operate. And that's a great way know, of explaining it too. Cause it just like, you know, it brings it home. It's like, yeah. we're on a plummeting airline. Yeah. <laughs> I need my oxygen first. Okay. I mean, which is not to say that I don't feel selfish at times, but I also, um, I've always known about myself that I need a lot of time by myself Mm. and everybody that I've ever been partnered with has known this as well. It's a lot harder with a kid to make that time. Yeah. But, um, and also I feel weird, you know, like my kid sees me writing every morning and she knows not to bother me. And sometimes I will have some guilt about that. Is that, that when or, you do it? You do it first thing in the morning? Um, well, it's not any writing for anything. It's sort of like the, the morning pages kind of thing. Just uh-huh. two pages, whatever it is. You know, sometimes there's a sentence in there, but rarely. Um, but it's just to do it. And um, I do wonder sometimes, like, she's going to grow up. How will she, how will she talk or think about her experiences? Like, will it always be like mommy was, I wasn't allowed to talk to mommy in the morning, 
you know, until she was done writing or mommy needed an awful lot of time in the backyard by herself. Yeah, it's, or, like, it's like, I feel like that with like, with meditation. Cause my daughter knows and uh, like, I'm glad she knows that uh-huh. I like at least do something. Right. Otherwise we're just, you know, we don't go to church. We don't do anything. Uh-huh. My wife doesn't do anything. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm like someone in this house <laughs> got to be connected to <laughs> something you know and like uh but no i think the the point that i'm trying to make once again like playing in between polarities or like kind of Mm -hmm. tossing two ideas back and forth is that you know yeah you got to do the stuff that we talked about you know where you're giving yourself oxygen so that you can be you know your best self for other people but there there does come like a a point at which you're you know you're uh, at the dividing line between self-indulgence and self-care you know like where does that exist? You know, right. where, like how many minutes a day does one sit in meditation or how long does one, or how many days a week does one yeah. hike before it starts to be like, Hey, you know, your, your, yeah. you know, your daughter would love to go to a movie with <laughs> right. you. I know you right. need your, you I'm, know? I'll say I'm guilty of this because I, the way that I treat weekends, like I really, I, my ideal life is like every day there or every week, there's one day where I do not leave the house And I don't have to like be on for anybody. Yeah. Typically for me, it's a Sunday. Um, and when I don't have that, I feel like I try to get it on another day and it kind of screws up schedules and other people in my life. And it's like, uh, but I also know that if I don't do this, I'm not going to be good. Like they're not going to like the person who I am when I don't have this kind of time. See, this is how, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot the same way. I'm a lot the same way. And it's like, I guess I wrestle with like, I think there's a a part of it is like, you understand yourself. Yeah. You know how to take care of yourself. That's a good thing. Yeah. Then there's also a part of me that's like, you need more shit than other people. Like you need more hiking and meditate. You know what I'm saying? Like you Hmm. need, you need more tune-ups. Like that's what I can get concerned about. Like I need more You're not doing enough. Well, no, like I can be like, some people don't need to do any of this. They seem pretty well adjusted. And like, I'm like, I got to get my exercise. Got to do my sit. Right. Got to, got to be scheduled in order to get yeah. the creative work done. Like all the things that I want to get done and the way that I want to be in my life, it, you have to be sort of orderly. I can't just be haphazard. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not really haphazard and I don't know that I've ever really been haphazard. So it would never sit right with me to be, I feel like I'm actually the more, the most haphazard in my life right now only because like I used to be really good at keeping and organizing paperwork, which I've needed in order to become licensed as a psychotherapist. But I had a kid in the middle of all of that. So all my paperwork went to shit. I don't know where things are. I'm trying to gather all of it. And I'm experiencing myself for the first time as like this haphazard person who didn't like have all my shit together. And it's a super uncomfortable experience. I don't like it. Yeah. And just what about like rolling with the punches? Like, Things go wrong. Schedule gets messed up. Yeah. You know, like my fucking internet is down yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you good at that when stuff like that happens? Like, I, I think I get frustrated with it A, at the level of just like basic frustration, but then yeah. also because it, it, it's a distraction. Right. I don't like when I'm dealing with bullshit. I guess nobody yeah, does. Yeah. I mean, nobody does. And like, I certainly will deal with it differently privately than I will, you know, probably my partner sees like the worst, like just outbursts or, you know, whatever it is. But like, overall, it's kind of... My Twitter followers see the worst. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes my Twitter (laughs) followers do too. Um, But I think that it's sort of aligned with that feeling too of like, I don't have time for this. If somebody rejects my work, I can't like wallow in it and Mm. like 
not do more work. I don't, you know, like frustrations happen. All of this stuff happens. I constantly remind myself too, that like, if I'm 43 years old and people in my family tend to live into their nineties, I have an entire other lifetime to live. And that is like terrifying and exciting, but also life is made up of a lot of these little frustrations. Like, am I going to lose my shit over every single one of them? Right. Like, no, conserve your energy. Yeah. You know? Right. Be a, and be a good example to your kid. Yeah. That's the other thing. You I know. mean that, yeah, if she wasn't there, I might be off the rails, <laughs> you know, be, be breaking shit. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that too. I don't want like, you know, you just don't want to be the parent who's like, Oh yeah. Daddy was the yeller or like, right. And then they mirror you, you know? Yes. You, Cause I mean, it's inevitable. Any parent, you're going to look at your kid one day and be like, Oh, they're doing something that's not good. And they learned it by watching me. Yes. It makes you feel like shit. Yes. That is something that I talk to my clients about to the clients who are thinking about children or have small children is like always thinking if they've talked to me about like their internal critic, typically their Wait internal. Wait a minute. Am I your client? <laughs> Do I have to pay you for this? No, it's free. <laughs> oh my God. On me. It's pro bono. But like, Typically the, like the critical voices in our head come from our primary caregivers, like how they spoke to us when they were angry or they thought we didn't do a good job. Like we tend to internalize those first voices Uh, that we heard. And then that becomes the critic voice in our child. And like, I have to remind myself of this constantly because yeah, my internal critic is my mother's voice. Like she's the one that's like saying all the negative shit to me in my head. And I'm not blaming my mother. It's just the way it is. That was the voice that I heard strongest and I've internalized it Yeah. and I carry it with me. And I have to constantly go back and be like, stop it. Shut up. This isn't productive to that voice. So I tell people who have kids or are thinking about kids like, okay, so work on this internal voice that you have. That is the critic voice, make it change it, do something with it. And then when you talk to your children, you really have to make sure that you're talking to them in a way, remembering that they are internalizing that voice. That's going to become their critical voice. Uh, no pressure. Their inner critic. Well, I know. I, but it's like, you know, too, the, this reminds me or seems related to the idea that like oh, pretty much never a good idea to speak in anger. Like yeah. If you're in a really afflicted state. It's really you, hard though. It's hard, but it's like, you know, nothing good comes of it. Right. If you can find a way to take, you know, the, the old thing, take deep breaths, yeah. bite your tongue, go yeah. for a walk. Right. Let cooler heads prevail. Like, you know, cause I, I don't know. I just, I find, I mean, not that I'm some big yeller or anything, but like, I'm very conscious. I want to do a good job right, right. and life inevitably oh, frustrates us, yeah. and, you know, and then but, you, but your kids also like, you know, I've had a couple of, in, like, there were a couple of times where major outburst happened that I, I was the one outbursting and my kid like didn't say anything about it like soon after, but like a year later was like, I remember that time when that, yes. And then I was like, Oh my God, like she's going to remember that forever. That's cool. That's like a formative experience. They're going to talk about this at school. Like, you know, these are kids. Like then you're going to teachers are looking at you like, I know, I know. And it was like, it was pretty bad. Like, I don't like to think about that, but she's remembered. Daddy needed his meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's life though. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Right. Exactly. 
And also I have to remember too, that for myself, like I saw all kinds of crazy shit growing up. I'm okay. Yeah. You know, I worked on it, but I'm okay. I think there's something to be said for people. Like I sometimes think like I didn't see enough shit when I was growing (laughs) up, truthfully, or had it too easy. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think kids, not always. I mean, there is a point, a distinct point past which it becomes too much for anybody. But I think the kids who have challenges as children and who have to really fight for themselves or work shit out, you know, that develops uh, some strength. Yes, you for know? sure. Like, I think, I mean, it's an obvious... Uh, That's the ideal, you know? It's like, then there are all these avenues that open up that are not so great, and hopefully, you know, the kid doesn't go down one of those avenues. Yeah. Because that, combined with the experiences that they've had, you know, might not How did turn you make out it? so well. How did you turn out so good? Um, I feel like I always had people in my life, even from a very young age, who were like you are doing a great job and you're amazing and you're going to do great shit. Like my teachers were often that, um, yeah, I've had lots of really good teachers over the course of my life who I feel like were my cheerleaders Uh starting from kindergarten. Like I honestly can tell you that I remember certain behaviors that teachers had with me that told me like, we think that you're smart. We think that you're going to do cool things. You need to keep going. It matters. It totally matters. I, I it totally matters. I can't matters. tell you how many times I've had that conversation yeah. with people on this show. Yeah. Teachers it makes saying, a huge difference. Kids, kids listen. Yeah. I mean, like, it's one thing if your parents are like, you're so smart, you're so this, but it's different when you have this other person who is like actually with you more hours a day, you know, who's cheerleading you and telling you that you can, you're capable of good things. And I feel like I always had that. And then I always happened to find mentors as a young adult and into adulthood, like mentors would show up and I, you know, I took from that. Yeah. I need a fucking mentor. (laughs) Can you get me a mentor? Sometimes they just got to show up yeah. or sometimes, I don't know. You just got to go, you... go for a fucking hike. Apparently <laughs> you know, and Jill totally. will, will pop out from the, uh, mountain, yes. lion, the mountain lion cave with a screenplay. <laughs> what, so what's going on? You, when she said this to you, you knew who she was. Well, after she said, I'm Jill Soloway, oh, then, then it was then, like, cause I, yeah. you know, she was like, she had sunglasses on and stuff. Right. And I was like, Oh my God. And I was totally freaked out. And then I think just over time, like I would continue to see her and it became more comfortable being like, okay, here's what I have going on, which, you know, it's like books or whatever that I have books going on. And like, that is not that interesting. I think, um, it's not because it's not really more, it's not really her world. Her world is now television. It's content. It's to use that word. Like people, they want people who have, uh, and she's, I mean, she shows up in that way too. Like she was very much like we were talking about like, could excavation be a movie? And she had told me like, I don't know if it could be a movie because of these other movies that exist. Your homework is to go watch those movies. Like which ones um, do you remember? I do, but I don't want to get, get of all the details. Cause okay. I think I'm going to end up writing about this. Okay. Um, but there's like two movies in particular that she was like, you know, it kind of covers that territory, but you should see them and then we should talk about it. And I would totally say things to her. Like I've never written a screenplay and she'd be like, you're, you're going to learn. It's going to be easy. You're going to be good at it. Writing's writing. Yeah. Storytelling. Well, storytelling. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying it. It's very, very difficult for me, but like, she also was like, and you can direct it. And I'm like, I have never no. And she's like, like, no, woman. I'll teach you. Like you'll do it. And so it's like that same, it's that mentorship and that cheerleading, like somebody 
who, you know, who I'm not paying, who I'm not, you know, like, cause your therapist can sometimes do this for you too. You know, hopefully they're being honest and also telling you where you need to work on things. But like here I have this person who like tells me that they admire my work and they want to help me. That's pretty amazing. How often are you in touch? Like, do you have an open line of communication? Is that what's going on? So right now we're in touch by email. Yeah. Yeah. But you can be like, Hey, I have some pages. I see, yep. Oh wow. Yep. She asked me to send her like the screenplay drafts that I'm working on. Cause I'm just, I'm trying to practice. I'm teaching myself. I don't want to pay anybody. I'm just tired of paying money right yeah. now. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. No. So I'm teaching myself and I'm just like, she, um, gave me a script that she has worked with to look at and like said, you know, look at this, try and do what's happening here. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm basically taking personal essays that I've written and trying to make them into short screenplays well, just as practice, yeah. just to keep doing it and to yeah. get comfortable. Read it. You got to read a lot of them. That helps. Yeah. It's the same thing as an, as a novel or essays or, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. in, input equals output. And, and I think that when it comes to screenwriting, you know, you got to see movies obviously. Yeah. But people, a lot of times, don't make the leap to actually read a screenplay. Right. If you do, if you do that, and the good thing about it is, you can read a screenplay in like yeah, 40, I know, 40 right? Minutes. I know. <laughs> They're so weird. They're yeah. so weird and short. It feels like technical writing to me. But somebody told me, my friend Jerry, who's a filmmaker, told me about like homework that I should do that I thought was really cool, and it was basically just like anytime you're watching something that you love or that you you love some element of it, like you stop you know, and you write notes about what it was that you loved, whether it was like something that was happening in the scene or the color or the tone or the actor or the whatever, yeah. and just start keeping notes and start to look, you can look for patterns and like the things that, that you have a strong response for. And I think that I love this idea. I haven't done it, but it's like, I'm doing it internally, but I love the idea of having a notebook where you keep this kind of information so that you can look and see Another what the patterns notebook. are. I know. I love notebooks. <laughs> yeah. Though. yeah. You got tons of them yes, at home. Yes. Yes. What's your, you like moleskin? What are you using? What are you? I do like moleskin. Yes. Okay. That is my favorite, but there, but it's a certain size and I am having a really hard time finding them. It's super weird. They're not, you can't get them everywhere anymore, but it's like, it's, um, I don't know, I guess, I don't know what the dimensions are, but it's like a certain size. It's, it's hard not, to it's find and like it's pocket. lined. Is it pocket? No, no, uh -uh. it's bigger than that. It's bigger. It's not the biggest one, but it's the second biggest one and it has lines and I have a hard time even ordering it oh. online. I don't know what's going on with them. If you work for Moleskin, get in touch with Wendy, <laughs> please sponsor her, please. It will be in my Instagram every day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> They should, they should have more relationships with writers. I like, wish I'm always like, I want somebody to sponsor me. Like I need workout clothes for my hikes. I want somebody to send me some workout clothes. Well, no shit. <laughs> I'm always taking a picture on that hike. Right. I'm, you know, I guess you got to have like a billion followers right. in order to get these people. Yeah. I, I don't have that many, but I do think like, uh, with remember when Amtrak did the writer's yeah. residency? Yeah. That was, that was a very cool idea. I think more places should do that. The Ace Hotel in New York does that. I feel like more places should be like making these kinds of relationships with us. Yeah. We're going to write about it. Yeah. You know, totally. I mean, Pod yeah, podcast I, about it. Exactly. I had a meeting at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles about like possibly, you know, I don't know if I'm hip enough. Like I walked in there and I was like, uh, I think I'm too norm core for the Ace. I'm going to be at the, I'll be at the embassy suites or I don't know. I don't know what I am, but, uh, you know, like that place was super cool. The Ace Hotel Theater in Los Angeles uh -huh. is beautiful. Yeah, I haven't seen the theater. And I'm not and I want to say too, like I have a great admiration for um the cultural programming that they do. Mm -hmm. 
That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's trying it to make cool. something cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it could just be a hotel. Right. Or it could be a hotel where they have like these awesome events. And, yeah. You know. So they should start doing some writer's residencies yeah. there. And like, come on. There's always a fucking empty room. Yes, exactly. Hotels. <laughs> and just keep a room empty. Have writers, you know, I think, and I think like a 60 day, <sighs> like something crazy like that, where it's like, you can really go in and get substantial work done. Whoa. Right. That's kind of cool. I don't know. The ones that I see in online is like the, the New York Ace Hotel. I feel like they are only there for like one or two nights, well, but like, I can write a page at your <laughs> hotel. Thanks. I didn't even... I'll write a poem. <laughs> yeah, right. I wrote a fucking poem yes. in your hotel and I, I wrote a page that I now need to revise. At home. Or I had like some amazing experience here that like I will write about later. Yeah. You got to have, you got to give somebody time. Yeah to get in trouble in your hotel. <laughs> so they, truly, because it becomes like, I, I think if you gave an extended residency or like, you know, if it was truly like a residence, you God, know, for love that. like some artists, like it, it's sort of like the Chelsea hotel in New York, you know, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden there's a mythology that yes, develops around it. Totally. And that, they want that. That's valuable. Hello to marketers. Yeah. Listen to us. <laughs> yeah. Let me run your business. Uh, Wendy, it's great to spend time with you again. Thanks. It was uh, great spending time with you too. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm always in awe of people who are as productive as you are. Congratulations on the Dream War. Did Thank I say you. That properly? You did. Mm-hmm. And uh, good luck with the screenwriting. Thanks so much. I need it. All right, you guys. There you go. That's Wendy C. Ortiz. Go get her book. It is called Bruja. It is available now. I like saying that. Bruja. <laughs> Bruja is available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. It is a dream war. You can find out more by visiting Wendy at her website. It's wendyortiz.com. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Wendy C. Ortiz, or uh, check out her Tumblr, which we discussed. I think she might even be on Facebook. Whatever social media. I think she's on Instagram, too. She's out there. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own app. It's free. The other people with Brad List, the app, it's free. Go get the app. It's free. Sign up for premium right there within the app if you want to access archived episodes, archival episodes. That's not free. You get the most recent 50 for free if you want more than that. If you want access to all 430-something episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's 75 cents a month. It's incredible entertainment value great way to support the show would appreciate it if you want to email me let me know what you think you can uh send me emails at letters at other letters at other weigh in with your thoughts didn't talk about the election today uh didn't talk about it not going to talk about it not thinking about it blocking it out of my mind what election there's not an election it's not a crazy person inches from the presidency it's not happening we're not living in a dystopian hellscape. We're an insane narcissist. Is a hair's breadth away from controlling the nuclear codes. That's not happening. <laughs> it's all good. We're all good. It's just a dream. Please remember that, uh, what was the, what I think I had something to say. Please remember that Ray Bradbury's father was a telephone lineman. And then like I had the first na- the names of the first five people to win the Pulitzer prize. I'd written these down. None of them uh, ring a bell at all for me anyway. And by sharing that with you, I wanted to underscore the fact that we are all 
dust in the wind. I always like this part of the song. All right, thanks to Wendy. Thanks to you guys. Talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>